You're listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes at Lyric Opera of Chicago. Backstage at Lyric features in-depth interviews with singers, conductors, and creative talents at one of the world's great opera companies. For additional podcast interviews, subscribe to our RSS feed or visit us online at lyricopera.org. Baritone Thomas Hampson is backstage at Lyric. It's more than just vocal conveyance. It, it, Vandy, I believe, always wants everything that you hear to be reflective of the thoughts of the character that is singing it. And for me, that is my standard. That's, that's what I want to achieve in, in anything that I do sing. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Backstage at Lyric. I'm Mark Travis, producer for the series and for the Buxbaum Family Lyric Opera of Chicago broadcasts. Considered one of America's leading baritones for the better part of three decades, Thomas Hampson's operatic repertoire spans from Mozart to Puccini and from Rossini to Wagner. Also a celebrated interpreter of leader, he has appeared in all of the major opera houses and concert halls of the world, and he has an impressive discography that includes many award-winning recordings. On October 1, 2010, Mr. Hampson will sing the title role in Lyric Opera's opening night production of Verdi's Macbeth. I had an opportunity to catch up with Mr. Hampson in New York a couple of weeks ago, where he is finishing his term as the New York Philharmonic's first-ever Mary and James G. Wallach Artist-in-Residence. In this first part of a two-part interview, we discussed his philosophy of the Verdi baritone, as well as his preparation for the role of Macbeth, and we also talked about his Hampsong foundation. Anyone who knows you knows the emphasis that you have always placed on text in anything that you do. In fact, the Hamsong Foundation is dedicated, I think, specifically to that, to bringing the art of singing from the page to the stage. Mm -hmm. So I suppose as a first question, tell us how does one even begin to tackle the journey of a text like this by Shakespeare and bring it in Italian to an opera stage. Well, actually, frankly, your question is is more probably better asked Giuseppe Verdi <laughs> than 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 me. And yes, I do enjoy texts, and I enjoy I enjoy historical context, and I enjoy I know as much as I can about the piece that I'm going to sing. But in fact, the opera is the opera, and the foundation is about song, and it's about two art forms: one linguistic, and the other one musical. Mm-hmm. And their blending together becomes a a, a dialogue of of text and music that is that is sung, of course, and that is always a kind of specific diary or mirror of a culture from which those songs come, and that's the page-to-stage idea. Macbeth, in your specific question to setting of Shakespeare, I found in, in the various pieces that I've done that are based in great pieces of literary art, Onyegin, certainly Macbeth, Hamlet, that I think it's misleading for a person if they think they're going to hear the play set to music. And and I think that's a very important point because most of the 19th century composers, even even the greatest of them, which I considered Verdi, of course, Wagner, but they're two different worlds, to be that he wanted librettos and librettists to find words that specifically had kind of an implosion power. So when they're taking words from a play, then the text is sometimes lifted straight from Shakespeare in Italian translation. I mean, the same words, as it were. 
He's looking for a juxtaposition of those words that have a different power set to music than they would in their dramatic context. And so I think that's where the challenge gets, is where does the word or the meaning of that passage or the meaning of those words leave off and the power of the music take over? Because in fact, everything about it is to convey the emotion and the psychological status, as it were, of that character. And that is something that one hears regardless of the word. And this is what I find the genius of a Verdi. This was the first time that he handled a, a Shakespearean text. Do you have a sense of how Piave's treatment differed from Boito? Is it more the difference in the handling of text, or is it just Verdi through and through as we think that's about That's a very words? detailed question, Mark. That's mm-hmm. an interesting question. I know what has been said about it. I think Verdi was extremely picky, choosy, and a pain in there <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, to his librettists. Boito was a very curious combination of poet and composer in and of himself. So I think that there was a, a meeting of minds that bred contention and genius. I think that what interested Verdi, despite his working relationship with Verdi, Loretus, I think what, what Verdi responded so strongly to, to Shakespeare was Shakespeare's innate sense of drama and how to unravel the conundrums of personal behavior and, and great complex motivations, psychology, psychoses, and their actions in a theatrical context. And I think he found that no matter how you kept editing the essence of Shakespeare, you were still left with this essential theatrical laboratory of human behavior. And that is to me what it seems Verdi responded to the strongest. We think of other operatic treatments of Shakespeare. Some of them deviate quite a lot. You mentioned that we're not hearing the play set to music. You know, one very famous example that I can Mm -hmm. think of is the ending to uh, Hamlet, Mm -hmm. uh, where the title character lives, uh, depending on where you see it staged. Mm. Do we see similar major deviations in this piece? No, I think you see, well, Hamlet, which they also called Hamlet, in France, which I sang a lot. And clearly the problem with the piece is without question the last 45 minutes. And it is very frustrating, extremely frustrating, because it was even frustrating to Verdi, who knew the piece very well and thought a great deal of it. And in fact, probably never went on to do his own Hamlet. Apparently he was terribly curious about King Lear, which the world is a much sadder place that he didn't do that. I mean, can you imagine if we had a King Lear from, from Giuseppe Verdi? I mean, my goodness me. Absolutely. But anyway, we kind of... The Hamlet, um, actually, there's reasons for that deviation. He ran out of time. He was up against a commission. He had written a piece that just got much bigger than him, Thomas, Ambroise Thomas. And he was writing in a city that liked very long operas, so they had this sort of huge, long French ballet, blah, blah, blah. They actually found three or four years ago or five years ago extracts of the of the gravedigger scene, which would have made that probably twice as long as we know it. So, I mean, you know, it was just one of those great theatrical events, and I think it just unloosed itself. Once he got past Ophélie's death, it just lost its dramatic tension. Now, none of that ever happens in Verdi, and I think that we're extremely fortunate for that. I don't think it has anything to do with the language. I think it just has to do with the miracle of composer. I mean, I think Verdi is a complete cut above. And again, his choice of subject and his choice of librettist and his choice of original play 
with the Shakespeare and and this theatrical drive that he always found, I think protected the integrity of the pieces that he did compose. I, th- I think it's very important that we keep bringing the point home that these are not plays set to drama, that, that there is some point where the language of music starts telling the story as well. What I find one of the most significant miracles about Macbeth is it's that it's so early. Mm-hmm. Because you're referring to, when we talk about Boito, we're talking about Falstaff. You know, we're, right. we're talking about literally 50 years later of a life that was very, very long. And also the last piece he wrote. And of course, Othello as well. But we're looking at Macbeth, this creation, this astounding creation of Macbeth, the first time out, 1847, which I think is is an astounding time. Because if you think of what was going on in Paris in 1844, and I believe that is the Tannhäuser year, and, of course, Schumann's year of, of miracle and song, uh, and, of course, the, the 1840s of Paris was a kind of cultural mecca of civilization that probably we didn't see until the end of the century in Vienna. And that Verdi wrote this thing, thing, (laughs) this opera, in such phenomenal, unique detail to anything else in the Italian operatic literature to that point, including his own, I think is, is very startling. Now, we are doing the revised version, as it as it were, the '65 version, which I applaud. I've, I've sung some extracts, in fact, I recorded the earlier aria and the thing that replaces the third act duet with with Lady Macbeth. And the changes are not just changing out numbers. He simply tightened. He got better at tightening the drama. I believe, personally, my my as, as interested I am always in manuscript and originals and first editions and the genie, and that's all wonderful. I have yet to see a first try of Verdi that was not made better by his second try. The only slight difference to that that I would say is that the Don Carlo, to me, in the French language, is a miracle of a piece. I think is is just so far ahead of its time and is so worthwhile that I think it should be a total stand side by side to the Italian version. And that also has chronological implications. Now, since I've started this subject, I do believe that Verdi's French opera should be led as French operas. In other words, I think Vepre Sicilienne should never be sung in this, what I consider to be a very bad Italian translation. I think we'd be much better off doing it in French and expecting it for what it is. There were a lot of French translations of his middle, especially middle period when he was in Paris. And the Hernani has a French version. Trovatore, Trouvert has a French version. I've sung and I think recorded the French version of that aria. And those are interesting, but they're not really part of the genesis of Verdi doing what Verdi did. So these are all extremely interesting aspects. But it is, I think, very pointed and very uh, illuminating to the Macbeth process and to the characters. And, and I'm sure actually to Barbara Gaines, our director, to see this genius in 1847 making a kind of theatrical, musical, dramatic piece of art that was in its time unique. It was a different kind of singing. It was a, The range of expression in this piece is so wide. The kinds of singing he wanted both from baritone and soprano, you know, a lot of covered this, a lot of open that, a lot of loud this, a lot of carried this, muffled, whispered, cajoled, screamed, whatever you want to call it. It's, it's, it, it's almost musical theater. Uh, it certainly is a kind of 19th century musical theater, but I don't want to confuse that term with it not being, you know, full-blown 
operatic singing. But it should, it's more than just vocal conveyance. It, it, Verdi, I believe, always wants everything that you hear to be reflective of the thoughts of the character that is singing it. And for me, that is my standard. That's, that's what I want to achieve in, in anything that I do sing. We're talking about the two editions, and of course, the 47 was a much bigger hit. It took quite some time for the 65 to catch on. Was Verdi, by the time he got to the 65 version, maybe too ahead of his time, or was he? did it have perhaps something to do with the cultural warmth of Paris of 47. Well, I don't know. I mean, look at, look, at what, look at the pieces that had become popular that had already come to life by, by 1865 from mm-hmm. Verdi. In some ways, he was retooling Macbeth because he loved it so much to catch up with the masterpieces of Rigoletto and, and Traviata and Trovatore and you know, all, the, all the great pieces. 65 were just short of Don Carlo, which of course is you know, a tectonic shift, really. So but I think the first version was very startling and captivated a kind of theatrical imagination. But, but the world of sensitivity to, to opera and its operatic form from 1845 to 1865 to 1885 you know, is just, are just these huge tectonic shifts of, of believability, demand for believability, use of singing, orchestration, quite frankly, uh, instruments that are being built and invented and new sounds. I mean, it's a very, very lively and, and extremely interesting world, and a great deal of opera is being written in many, many languages. This is something that I feel that we lose sensitivity to today. I mean, mm-hmm. the world of opera is, even to the opera goer, let's say it that way today, is, is actually a pretty marginal percentage of what was actually composed and 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 the conoscenti of course know this in name but but even when you really want to start digging into how deep how many wonderful pieces and and worthwhile pieces were written and i think could still be ingested and digested it's just that it's too expensive you know, it's just it, 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 all the necessities to bring production together are just not there. And opera audiences today are less forgiving. They don't want to go to a place where they have to say, okay, well, that was good, but that wasn't. They want the full Monty. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, I, I think being an opera in, an impresario today is a, is a very, very difficult uh, job. I've always thought that. Talk to us about what the term Verdi baritone means to you. <laughs> well, it, it's a it, for me, it's a it's a red flag in front of a bull, uh, and I and it's not because I'm trying to justify myself as a as a baritone that I get to sing roles of Verdi. I think it's one of the most useless descriptions of singing in the vernacular. I've become less diplomatic over the years. I'm, I'm now at a, I'm now old enough to sort of say, get over it, stop it. For one thing, it's nonsensical, and the reason why it's nonsensical is because having sung so much of Verdi's repertoire, and, and even if I hadn't, just to know it, could you please quickly tell me three characters that have the same reason for existence? I mean, usually when we say Verdi baritone, it's somebody's, somebody's term for something that is big, huge, loud, dark at the core, and high at the top. And that's the Verdi baritone. It's, it's become... A particularly useless description of singing because it's not what we expect anymore from the stage. We actually slowly but surely are expecting more round presentations, meaning believability as well as vocalism. 
the astounding thing about Verdi is that he kind of invented the baritone voice, not just the Verdi. And that's also perhaps where that term came from because he did – and this is perhaps something – this is my take on it. And, and, and that is that in creating this hybrid called the baritone, which, which was for Verdi very important because he could inhabit so many different references of the human spirit and behavior – he could be demonic. He could be cajoling. He could be incredibly tender. The ultimate father figure and the ultimate demon as well. That's actually what I meant at the beginning. How, what, what does Verdi baritone mean when you've got so many disparate psychologies involved? So, so it can't just be about voice. But what is unique to it is that Verdi wanted a voice that could do that. And he wanted it in a male voice. And he wanted it in a lower male voice. Now, here's where the rub comes. Is it a lower voice that has a higher extension? Or is it a really resonating higher voice that sacrifices the very top of his range, meaning the, the B flats and maybe even the A's, to thicken the upper middle part of the voice that can carry the richness a little higher in the chest voice and still have the height to the voice and that you know that kind of thing. So is it is it a voice that works from the top down or is it a voice that works from the bottom up? Now we've had spectacular examples of both of those. And, you know, certainly the, the great buzzwords of a, of a Tito Rufo. To me, Tito Rufo is, you know, is like a lion. He's like a, like a bear. It's, it's, it's such a unique human voice that I, I can't really allow him to determine a repertoire. It's, it's just a phenomenon. It's like Shalyapin, you know, in, in, a different, in a different way. My personal belief is that it was a, for lack of a better term, dramatic tenor that let go of the very top, the paranoia of that of that last that last passaggio into the very very high voice, especially the the dramatic ringing B flats and so forth. Because you have to protect, if you have to protect phrases that are always going to inhabit the B flat, the B natural, and to some extent in various repertoire even the C, but mostly it's the B flat. Then you have a different, completely different use of your voice as a baritone or tenor through that upper middle part of the E F F sharp G. If the top of the phrase never goes anywhere near A and hangs up in there either lyrically or dramatically in that E natural F, F sharp G, you can have a great deal of alternating expression. It can be very voix mix and tender, and it can be just as loud as hell. <laughs> and at that point, it becomes the unique abilities of any particular singer. But it has nothing to do with fach. It has to do with your, your apparent need. Now, I would say the, the two other components of any of Verdi's singing, period, that are so important, uh, the first and foremost is messa di voce, which is this swelling and de-swelling of sound. In other words, the, the very pulse, which is, of course, can only be uh, born of legato. Mm -hmm. I mean, legato is the sine qua non of, of all singing, but certainly Italian singing. Legare to bind, so that vowels to vowels. Every vowel you sing has every other vowel in it, and it, seamless modulation, a messa di voce. And I would maintain that the second point, and this is where... It might even be contentious. I do believe that Verdi wrote some of the most amazing music for every character he wrote that articulates a psychological status, a kind of 
wh whatever state of being that person is in, it's more than melody, it's more than harmony. It is truly musical language articulating the euphoria, the hatred, the frustration, the longing, the desperation, whatever it is that that's happening, that is what he has written. And I think it is our responsibility as singers to make that, to believe in that so firmly and have that so in our singing souls that that's actually what you hear more than the Hampson voice or the this voice or the that voice. I, it's the believability of the essence of why they're singing that amazing phrase. If you have to write in a score, sing piano, you're protecting yourself against people who don't obviously get it, you know? I mean, how else could you sing that except piano, you know? I could go through so many examples of that. So to me, when I say that, barit that the Verdi baritone is a useless expression, I'm not trying to be provocative, not trying to be a, a pain. It's just, to me, a so much more interesting, richer conversation about why we sing, period, and the genius of great masters like Verdi, period, than somebody's quick box description that we tend to have in all facets of our life today for everything we talk about. I mean, we talk about politicians in kind of two or three terms and look, you look at, you know, I'm not trying to bless politicians, but my goodness, that's difficult. You know, these are, we're all real living, breathing human beings. Complex creatures. Complex yes. creatures. Right. Take us through a little bit of what the process will be. As, as we're speaking now, it's uh, mid-April and um, Macbeto is going to be Lyric's opening night opera. What will happen for you between now and the first time that you set foot on the stage? What will you do in terms of study? What will you do in terms of exercise? What will you do to immerse yourself? Uh, what will you do with uh, Barbara, perhaps, and, and maybe any of your colleagues in the production? Well, that's a, that's a wonderful question. I'm sure very interesting. Um, I mean, here we are in New York, like you say, it's in the spring. The good news is I've sung Macbeth a lot. In, in a couple of different productions, and that production in several different cities, and so forth and so on. So I, I and and the good news about that is this is also something for opera singers, you know, and and, and, and new nouveau uh, directors get very nervous. They want to have people with fresh books, and they don't want to have them sung anything because they want it all to be new and so forth. And actually, that's the the biggest mistake they can start with. It's a different thing that we do in the opera. The opera, we learn pieces and we keep doing them in different productions and so you get that. And so I'm very excited that I have a basic understanding of the piece and experience with the piece, even athletically, singing-wise, that I can be at her behest. And your conversation is really centered around Barbara Gaines, who is, mm -hmm. who is not an opera producer but is doing this opera. I think it's her second opera, and I don't really care whether it's her first opera or never did an opera. She is a wonderful producer. She is an incredibly intelligent woman. She's an expert in Shakespeare uh, drama, which means that I would have thought that her readings on personalities will be one of the, one of the most fun parts of this project. I, I have not had a detailed conversation with her yet about who this guy is. Uh, I remember the, about the third production of, of, of Arabella that I did was with, a, was, was with um, Sven-Erik Bechtold, who is a very famous uh, Burgtheater actor, mm -hmm. who is also a wonderful producer. He really is both. And we had correspondence for about a month before we ever even met each other I mean, literally letters back and forth about sort of making up storylines of who Mandrika was, where did he come from, and what do we do? What do we know about him, and what can we assume, and so forth? Barbara and I have not started that, 
uh, and actually, this is where I look forward to sitting at her feet and saying, you know, where does this guy come from in the Shakespeare world? And where do you see the synthesis in the Verdi world? Because she will have that take, and, and that is for her call. I don't care whether we're on roller skates or, or – well, I do, but but I'm not worried about that. And I don't think we will be. <laughs> I don't think we're on roller skates. I've seen some of the sketches. and I'm doing some of the costume fittings. My own personal preparation uh, won't be a lot this spring. I, I probably won't even open the book until I've, – I've got so much – and a, a, a revival of Onyegin, and then I've got a whole bunch of Mahler things I'm doing to, for the birthday and so forth. So I probably won't even actually open Macbeth and, and get a pianist and start working through it until late July. But um, we have a good rehearsal period. I think it'll be a very intense rehearsal period. We have two weeks of just you know rehearsal room colleague kind of thing. I know Nadia Michael as a as a colleague, but I've never worked with her. And that's that's going to be hand in glove. That's just you know I, I know how she works, and, I, and she's a wonderful singer and a wonderful performer. Polombo, the, the conductor, I've worked with. We've done Bocanegra in, in in Vienna together. It seems like we've done something else in Zurich. I don't think we've ever done Macbeth together. He's a, he's a wonderful Verdi conductor. And really, the preparation is you know just to get there on time, be rested. I'm coming in a couple of days early, no jet lag, and and with complete open mind and open book. I find, you know, to go back to the, what the first said, is it since I know it so well, I feel like I can open my book even farther for other people to write in it. And so it, it pleases me a great deal. And I also want to say that it's a great honor to be invited to open an opera house's season. Uh, I haven't actually done that very much in my career. And the trust that Bill Mason has on this project and to to actually birth this project with me and with Barbara, which he did, it's more than flattering. It's um, it's the kind of thing you write in autobiographies with thank you very much and and uh, a higher honor and a deeper responsibility than that in our profession there isn't. So mm. I take it very seriously. You're no stranger to Chicago. What are uh, some of your favorite things and some of your must-dos while you're in the city? Well, i got to tell you one thing. The only opera I've sung in Chicago, I've sung two, Thais and Traviata, I've sung in Chicago a lot, and I love it. But they were both in January. I mean, give me a break. Yeah. <laughs> it is the coldest damn place I've ever been in my life. I I can't tell you how thrilled I am to be in Chicago in October in that wonderful fall weather and those gorgeous golf courses. Mm. And once we get the project up and going, we've got those two-day spans, there's no better place to keep your mouth shut and rest and stay healthy than play around the golf. So I'm looking forward to everything that Chicago has to offer, but quite frankly, I'm not I'd have to think the last time I spent a great deal of time in the Chicago area where it was really good weather. Mm-hmm. And Chicago was one of my favorite cities. Uh, my, my folks come from the Midwest down in, in uh, Missouri. And uh, so as a kid, we came through Chicago a lot. And, and I've got relatives that will come up. And uh, it, the Chicago Symphony is one of the greatest orchestras in the country, if not the world. And certainly will be there. But also the museums. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the modern museum, modern art museum is incredible. That, in fact, that whole complex that has been ha, has just developed and developed, I haven't been there so much. I also have a, a wonderful relationship with Roosevelt School. Oh, yes. Uh, David Holloway is a very dear friend of mine, and, and I'm sure I'll be down there, you know, working with some students, which I look forward to. But, no, I, Chicago has a little bit of everything to to offer. Um, uh, the summers in Ravinia are great, but actually being downtown, I do enjoy being a tourist in, in, in cities, especially when I'm there long enough to sort of take it in stride, mm-hmm. you know, rather than just coming in and singing and flying back out. 
You've been listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the curtain at Lyric Opera of Chicago. For additional interactive content and to order tickets, visit us online at lyricopera.org.